0: Okay, this morning is September 26th. It's 2004. Our message this morning is Kings and Pawns. Uh, Kings and Pawns as in chess pieces. And uh, before I get there, though, I wanted to, to cover a couple things from our worship, our prayer time this morning that are impressed upon me. When we're talking about David's new job, Stephen Darnell moving here, all the things that God has done, Matt and Cass's house, uh, Mandy having purchased a house. And we began then also to pray for healings and all those things. Something rushes back to my remembrance. And uh, I've been working on a newsletter for a, a while that we'll send out at some point or at least feature on our website um, called uh, monument stones or boundary stones. Or there's, a, there's a bunch of ways they're spoken of in the Bible. Memorial stones is the word I was looking for. Here's the thing. When we're praying for Joe to be healed, when we're uh, praying for my hand to be healed, which still needs to be healed, y'all keep praying for that, we're not asking God to do something that we don't know that He does. So, well, how do you know He does it? Well, I read it in the Word. Well, that's good, but that's not good enough for me because you could still say, I read it in the Word, but what's it have to do with me? We are basing this upon the fact that we can look at the memorial stones in our life that are inscribed upon our hearts and say, He healed Jennifer's knee last week. And I mean, when I say healed it, uh, she ran further than she has ever run uh, yesterday, uh, with absolutely no pain. So I mean, it's healed. There's there's no question that it's healed. Uh, There was some talk. Well, maybe it's because she got new shoes or something. I've talked with two therapists now about it. It's not possible to have the kind of ACL pain that she was having and shoes fix it in the way that it fixed it. It was God. When we ask God to heal something, uh, like Joe, we were praying about this morning. We can look back and say he healed David's baby, you know. Mm-hmm. Bethany and, and the mother, were something bad was supposed to happen. We don't have to go into all that, but I mean really bad. Absolutely. And there were no side effects, and things like liver enzyme counts were fixed overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, God does this kind of stuff. Well, I think it's worth praising Him and remembering uh, the memorial stones in your life. You. We set up mile markers along the roads our highways to let us know where we are, Well, the same thing happens in the kingdom. You know where you are because you have been this way before. Okay, with with that not in mind, I mean, I was just laying up. I just wanted to remind us good things are going on in our lives. Don't let them go by. I don't normally journal and stuff, but I have since I started this church began uh, the semblance of a journal. I don't write down things every day, but I do write down major events in the church. And it's encouraging to me to glance back over it. Remember that when you read a book like Acts, we're covering decades in, in just a few chapters. And so you read the events and it looks like somebody got raised from the dead every day. And that's not the case. But if you chronicle the miracles in your life and put them in a thousand words or less, it would look like a miracle was happening every day in your life. Well, the same way you read the Word and you're encouraged by what happened there, you can look at the events of your life. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That's because the shepherds wrote the events of their lives, the major events on their staff. So the, his rod and his staff comforted him and that he could lean on it and he could look at what God had already done. That's a whole other message. And this morning we're going to be in a different one, but that's worth mentioning. It's, when we see what God's done for David here recently, it's, it's worth Mentioning When we see what God's done in your lives, it's worth mentioning. We need to to focus on that. It'll give you faith for what lies ahead. But this morning's message is Kings and Pawns. This is birthed out of an experience I had yesterday. I'm not a terribly deep guy, never have been. I tend to preach about whatever is on my mind that morning. And when I woke up this morning, chess was on my mind. And this is not because I'm a masterful chess player, I assure you. In fact, I learned yesterday at, uh, through great expense, David uh, David beat up on me all day yesterday as he taught me to play chess. Uh, there were a couple times he remembered some rules about halfway through, but <laughs> by all rights, if, if you need an eco boost, you can come see me at any time and I, I think Judah would masterfully and soundly defeat me in chess. But as I began to think about chess, like everything else, you can learn even from... the the game of chess like you can, everything else in creation about God. So our message this morning is Kings and Pawns. And you all right, Judah? Okay. It's Kings and Pawns. We're going to be in Isaiah 46 to start with. It occurred to me as I was studying the Word this morning that God would be a fantastic chess player. And, you know, that's kind of like stating the obvious, uh, obviously. But there were some things that... And again, I've only had one day's experience with chess, so I'm I'm not claiming here to uh, base this message that has theological impact on a perfect understanding of chess. I'm just going to make some general assumptions that are my one day's observation of chess and what I think it taught me about God. Is that all right if I do that? I mean... (laughs) Uh, if somebody in here is you know, Bobby Fisher in hiding or whoever, some chess master, then forgive me if I get a term wrong. I just learned the pieces. But one thing that seemed very important that I frankly didn't have the ability to do, that I think God really does have the ability to do and very good chess players have in common with God, is I tended to focus on whatever move was next. While it seems to me that very good chess players can see several moves ahead. And one of the things that would happen to me is this one time, I, I mean, I was excited. I had uh, I had my pieces set up where David was like in triple threat. Any way he moved these pieces, uh, I was going to get him and within one move. The problem is he was thinking a little further ahead than I was, having more experience in chess and he could see the end result of several moves. And so no matter what I did, he, he kept me in checkmate the whole whole game and I never got to accomplish the one moves that I wanted so it has occurred to me number one that if you're going to be good at chess you need to be like God and see several moves ahead with that in mind we're in Isaiah 46 sermon title being Kings and Pawns and we're looking at some similarities between mastering chess and God In Isaiah 46 we're going to see an entire chapter devoted to the fact that one of the God's claims to fame, one of the things that makes Him God is that He sees more clearly than we do. And watch this. He says, uh, "...Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden." They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth. Even to your old age in gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags, Others weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and it stands there. From that spot it cannot move. God's gone through great, great lengths here to say, hey, These idols, these things that can be carried around, they're in one spot. They're a burden to those that carry them. How are you going to compare me with those idols? How do I measure up when you compare me with these idols? He says, Though it cries out, it does not answer. Or though you cry out to it, it doesn't answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. Remember this. Fix it in your minds. Now, if God says remember this and fix it in your minds, I think we would do well to meditate on it and do that. Remember this. Fix it in your mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come? I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far-off land, a man of to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Friends, God begins to distinguish himself from the idols by saying this, this thought, and it's not all that unlike a chess player that can see several moves in advance. He says, you would worship something that is poured out of a bag. You would worship something that's dug up from the earth, something that you put on an animal for it to be carried, something that you can cry out to and it can't answer. He said, I though see the very end from the beginning. In other words, when God begins something, He knows how it will finish. That's why the Bible sets Him apart first and foremost as the Creator of all things. If He created it, He knows exactly where it will go. Now, people have always wondered about the omniscience of God and... There's a great debate. Are there things that God doesn't know? Uh, There's not great debate amongst people that don't read the Word. I mean, they just assume that everything they've ever heard in Sunday school is true. The reality is the Bible speaks of two kinds of knowledge that God has. Things that He's searching to find out and does and those things that are constants in His plan. Purposes that He has determined that will happen no matter what else happens. We're not going to go into a long, protracted discussion of what that means today, I want you to know in this text, in this, we have a constant that he mentions. He says, I will summon a man from a far off land to fulfill my purpose. Now, in general, that could be anybody, couldn't it? I mean, the fact that God will summon someone from afar to fulfill his purpose. We looked at Agnosto Theo, that message where God brought a man named Epimedes from the Isle of Crete all the way into Athens to fulfill his purpose, Right? In this case, in 740 B.C., 740 years before Christ, we have this prophet speaking about a man coming from the east. Later, or earlier in the book, he named him. His name was Cyrus. He would fulfill the purpose of God in restoring the people out of captivity, even though while he's prophesying this, they haven't gone into captivity yet. You know, when God established the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 32, He began to tell them what would happen when they were not disobedient. He didn't say what might happen. He said this will happen. I mean, you need to go back and read the blessings and the curses from Ebal and, and look at those corresponding chapters. God told Israel that there would be a dysphora before it ever happened. He tells them even about the Babylonian captivity that would happen and before it happens how He's going to bring them out and names the guy that is going to bring them out. I think it's safe to say that God sees more than just a few moves ahead. Well, how does that relate to us? That means that even when you're in a position where you don't understand what's going on, it looks all bad, you can trust that God has worked out and seen further ahead than you can see. You know, I was talking with Judah one time when he was about Gabe's age, and I was wearing a hat. And uh, the hat was a brand new hat, and it was blue, and it said Old Navy on it. So I told Judah, I said, hey, uh, you like my Old Navy hat? He says, that's not old, that's new. I said, son, it's an Old Navy hat. Dad, it's new, it's not old. said, Judah, what you can't see is that these words up here say Old Navy. That's the kind of hat it is. Oh... See, as children before God, there are times He can see something that we just cannot see, and so we misunderstand it. We don't understand the Word sometimes when it's given. We don't understand what He's trying to communicate because our vision and our knowledge are limited, which is why you have to trust Him for all of your knowledge and all of your vision. If you want to be good at chess, the first thing you need to learn to do, and I know this for my ineptness, is to think further than just one move. Uh, David tells me that... Many people that learn to, to be proficient in chess can think five moves ahead. I watched a movie the other day with Jennifer where this young man who was a child prodigy saw a move when, a, when another child made it that in 12 moves would give him checkmate. Now, that's, that's so far beyond me, I don't know what to tell you. God doesn't see five moves or, or 12 moves. We're talking thousands of years He's able to see. So, well, how does all that work? If, if God sees that, what's the point in making choices? Now that's the beauty in it. He doesn't force you into a choice. He knows what move you're going to choose. Now, how that works, I don't know. I can tell you how it seems to work in chess. There's probabilities. If I move into a certain position, you understanding each Ability of the peace, know what the next likely move would be. And so you learn to counter. Well, I am submitting this before you this morning. God knows when He does certain things, there will be certain reactions from people. He raises up people for that purpose. How else do you raise up a Pharaoh and know that his heart's going to be hard? If men have uh, their own free will, and the Bible definitely teaches that, then how do you know how Pharaoh will react? Because he knew, like a chess piece, what Pharaoh was capable of and what he wasn't. So he knew how he would react to certain things. Does that make sense? One of the things that was particularly hard for me is it's difficult for me to grasp the movement of the knight on a chessboard. It moves in L-shaped patterns. I don't tend to see very well in L-shaped patterns. So very often I put uh, a pawn or some other chess piece in jeopardy, not understanding the movements of the enemy. God has no such limitations. He sees the movements perfectly, better than we see our own selves. Own selves. We obviously only have one self, better than we see it ourselves. Turn to Isaiah 43. We're going to stay in Isaiah for a minute. The verse I want you to remember from Isaiah 46 is 10. I make known the end from the beginning. By the way, when he said he summons a bird of prey, the standard on Cyrus's flags was an eagle a world-renowned best bird of prey. That's why we chose it to put on our flag. Also, the Romans adapted it later. He's actually going to call him by name later, though, and we will read that. And he's going to call somebody by name in 740 B.C. that did not live, period, was not on the planet until around 500 B.C. That would be like George Washington telling us about Stephen, you know, and, and writing a book and naming him and talking about things he's going to do. So, We are in Isaiah 43 and uh, we're going to start in verse 4. Since you are precious, and I've taught on this before so I'm not going to go into great detail with this. Israel has been in multiple captivities. The northern kingdom went into captivity under Assyria uh, not long after Isaiah's day. The southern kingdom of Judah went into captivity under Babylon and came out in Ezra and Nehemiah's day some uh, 70 years later. And all of Israel was under Roman occupation uh, during Jesus' day. And then the Jews throughout history after A.D. 70 have been in captivity in different places dispersed across the earth. Now this was prophesied about all the way back as far as Moses and it's been being carried out since then. What we're going to read about concerns the great Diaspora. The great Diaspora, meaning the largest one ever, the one that we have just experienced over the last 2,000 years, from AD 70 to May 14th of 1948. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up. And to the south, Do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witness to prove they were right so that others may may hear and say it is true. You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am He. What did he say would happen here? He's speaking of a day when obviously Israel is scattered to the east, scattered to the west, scattered to the north, and scattered to the south. Sounds like a dysphora to me, huh? Dysphora meaning they've been thoroughly dispersed around the globe. And what he's teaching here is there's going to be a day when you're spread out all over the planet. And he, they know this because they're being taught right now that they're going to be carried off into captivity. It's much of the subject of the book of Isaiah. He says, you're going to be scattered all over the planet, but I'm going to do something. I'm going to speak to the directions and tell them what to do to bring you back to Israel. And I'm going to do this so that you can stand before the nations and say, hey... Which of you serve a God that proclaimed something like this in the former times that has now come about, come about? And you will be my witness that I spoke it beforehand, that it was revealed to you, and that it was done. So that the uh, end result will be, when I act, nobody can reverse it. And you'll know that I, even I am the Lord. That's His teaching. One of the things, just like in Isaiah 46 that He's teaching is I'm a God unlike any other. I announce beforehand what I'm going to do. The enemy still can't stop it. And afterwards, you'll be able to look back and say, he announced it before he did it. What a big God he is. Well, why would we cover a topic like this this morning? Aside from the chess, aside from seeing several moves in advance, is because it creates great faith to know that God does this. Now, would it be big if he did this? Would it be? Okay. Well, let's look at the actual act of what happened then. They were dispersed all over the globe. I told you that happened from AD 70 until May 14, 1948. How long is that? Some 1800 and some odd years. God announced this in 740 BC. It did not occur until AD 70. Long, long time. Okay? Over 800 years. And then from the time they were dispersed all over the globe, he delayed in keeping this promise 1,800 and something years. Did it look like the promise of God had failed? Yeah, of course it did. If you were a Jew dispersed out to the ends of the earth and you read this, you'd go, hey, there's going to be a day when he's going to bring us back. There's going to be a day when we all go to Israel and we can proclaim to everybody. He said beforehand he was going to do it and he's done it. Our God's a big God. And for a hundred years, you hung on to that. And for two hundred years, you hung on to that. For three hundred years, you hung on to... How long would go by before you would say the Lord is slow in keeping His promise? See, we are tempted in the game of life to go, wow, maybe God can't see that far into the future because what He said happened, would happen, doesn't seem to be happening. And you begin to lose faith and worry and doubt begin to surround you. One thing that you have to have if you're going to play chess, is the ability to see several moves into the future and have confidence that you've seen that correctly. If you don't, you'll second-guess your moves and your strategy begins to change. God has no such problems as us. He's supremely confident that when He says it, it comes about and all He asks of you is that you trust Him. Now, in your experience in reading the Word, is anything in it filler? Does it just seem to be thrown in because they were bored? So when God says, I quote here, I will gather you, I'm sorry, let me start at the beginning. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Do you think that could be of particular significance? Well, obviously, by the way I'm setting this up, it is of some significance, correct? Correct. The Jews were scattered all over the world and in May 14, 1948, something unique began to happen. Before that, a British mandate was issued. There were world events moving chess pieces to cause this to occur. But at that time, something unique began to happen. Jews could freely come from the West. They could freely come from the East back to Israel and they started to, some 600,000 Jews. The problem with this, though, is he said they'll come from the east and the west. But what did he say about the north? Y'all look, tell me. He said what? He said he would, the north would have to give them up. What happened in the north? Do you know what northern country, north of Israel, held over a million Jews? Russia. Russia. And he had to make a political change. The God of all gods spoke to Russia and said, give them up because they have to come back. And the Soviet Union began to crumble... And then the people started to come. Do you know how many came between May of 1993, 91, May of 1991 and the year 2003? Over a million Jews returned from the north. Now God said they'll come from the west, they'll come from the east, but I'll have to say to the north, give them up. God didn't say that until the 1990s. Actually, it was it. 1989, I'll get it right eventually, I'm sorry. For those on the CD, that's May of 1989 to the year 2003. Over a million Jews returned from the Soviet Union. Now, what other direction is mentioned? The South. And what what was said of the South? He spoke to the North and said, Give them up. And he spoke to the South and said, Do not hold them back. You know what else happened in the 90s? The largest airlift in human history. It is in uh, actual record books. Nobody has ever transported more people in a single day at any time in the air than happened in the 1990s. you know what it was? It was discovered that a remnant of people living in Ethiopia were actually Jews. The neat thing about Israel is if you can prove that you're a Jew, then you have automatic citizenship in Israel. But Ethiopia did not want them to leave. So God had to issue a decree that says, do not hold them back. The nation of Israel petitioned the United Nations. They petitioned the world and they issued a statement to Ethiopia. Do not hold the Jews back from coming home. And the largest airlift in history occurred and it occurred about 20 years ago. See, we're not living in a day when we're waiting for all of the prophecy to be fulfilled. We're living in a day when words spoken 740 years before Jesus lived are being fulfilled now. Can God see more than just a few moves ahead? You'll like this next scripture then. In Isaiah 43, He tells us the directions they'll come from. What He'll have to do to get those directions. He did this so that we would know He was God. Well... In Isaiah 49, he says how they're going to come back. In Isaiah 49, starting in the 22nd verse, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. How were the Jews going to get back? They're going to get back in the arms of the Gentiles. It wasn't enough for God to say, there's going to be a diaspora in the future. It wasn't enough for God to say, there's going to be a dysphora, and I'm going to bring you back. That that would be big, but it wasn't big enough for God. God said, there's going to be a dysphora in the future. I'm going to bring you back. Here are the directions they're going to be coming from and here is who will be carrying them. Now, what's interesting about that is the arms of the Gentiles. The one organization I went to visit in Israel alone helped 21,000, 21,000 Jews, and this is an entirely Gentile organization, come from the Soviet Union. Just that one organization. Of the one million that came, almost all of them were sponsored by Gentiles to get here. These are, this are the commercials you see on Saturday and Sunday mornings on TV, on the wings of eagles, and all of these other things. This was to fulfill God's prophecy. God is bringing them back, and He said how He would do it. Now, He said how He would do it, and. Uh, did we read uh, Isaiah 44? Go back to Isaiah 44. And here's another thing he says about why he does it. Isaiah 44, verse 24. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by Myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise... And turns it into nonsense. Who carries out the words of His servants and fulfills the predictions of His messengers. Who says of Jerusalem, I shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah they shall be built. And of their ruins I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, Be dry and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and, the, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Now, I don't want to confuse you by changing between the different kinds of diasporas and captivities that have occurred. I say all this to point this out. In Isaiah 46, we see that God knows the end from the beginning. In Isaiah 43, we see that He got into the specifics of even talking about the directions they would return from from the great diaspora, not Cyrus returning, but the great diaspora. In Isaiah 44, we see that he says he makes the words of his servants be fulfilled. Right on down to Daniel has prophesied that Cyrus, actually Isaiah names him, and Daniel records that it happened. Ezra and Nehemiah is the time period that it happened. Cyrus issued the decree. So, well, why go through all of that, Eric? Here's why not just to increase your faith, not so that you know that God sees more than a few moves ahead and certainly not to be so trite as to say that God would be a good chess player. If God wrote these kind of things down, this makes a literal interpretation of the next verse possible. Turn to Psalm 119. is what you need to get out of the first point. In Psalms 119, verse 103, you see one of the most familiar passages in the world. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Why can you take that and know that that's more than just pretty figurative language? Because we have just seen demonstrated in the book of Isaiah alone, not to mention everywhere else, that God speaks before something will happen for the purpose of letting people know that He's God, that He proclaims the Word through His prophets and causes their Word to come to pass, right down to naming a world leader hundreds of years before it happened. Why? So that you will have confidence that His Word... It's a light to your feet and a lamp to the path. See, it's not like chess where you have to be brilliant. It's not like chess where you have to be able within your own uh, mind to visualize five modes ahead. The whole Christianity is summed up in this type of phrase or at least in this concept. Man chose in the garden to choose for himself what was right, how he would move the pieces, if you will, by eating of a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Christianity is a return to totally depending upon God's strategy based in God's Word. Lord, what should I do? What is your purpose for my life? How would you like me to react in this situation? He didn't just give us Word. He also gave us the Holy Spirit to show us that. This is why you see the concept in Romans. As many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. See, since we don't... And by the way, Ecclesiastes... And I didn't write it down, but the third chapter of Ecclesiastes says God put eternity in men's heart, but they can't fathom the end from the beginning. In other words, Solomon and all of his wisdom realized man can't see the end from the beginning, but the Bible declares that God does. Well, if you're nearsighted, meaning you can see things up near, right? Isn't that No, the other way, you can't see things far. Hmm? Yeah. Nearsighted means you can see things near. Okay. If you are nearsighted, meaning that you can see things near, but you can't things far, what would you do if you didn't have glasses? You'd buddy up with somebody that had the opposite problem, right? Well, Christianity is realizing you don't have the ability to see several moves into the future, but you know the guy who does. So you're going to depend upon him for all of your knowledge, all of your leading. And then here's the thing. If I'm following you because I don't know where we're going, if I'm following Stephen to the omni-center because I don't know where it is, it doesn't matter what the surroundings look like around me or how lost we look. If I trust he knows where he's going, it's enough for me, is it not? And I'm not. if I'm following him, I'm not anywhere he hasn't led me, meaning he's been there before me. Well, think about the same thing with God. If you go ahead and accept the fact that you're short-sighted, you're going to depend on His sight. It doesn't matter what you see going on around you because you trust that He's leading you in the right way and you're not anywhere that He has not been. So there is no surprise to Him. You don't have to cry out to God as if God is unaware of your circumstances if you're following Him. He was just there. Does that make sense? Now, I have to say, God, you're, you're carrying me through shantytown here. I'm scared. He knows you're through shantytown. He just walked you into there. He prepared the way before you. He ordered your footsteps. Okay, so in chess, the ability to see several moves ahead is important. What else is important? Well, you have to know the abilities of each piece. One of the things that frequently messed me up in the beginnings of this game was I have to seriously think about each piece. Now, this one only moves diagonally. This one moves in any direction. This one moves any number of spaces in any direction. This one only moves in L-shaped patterns. He ate my lunch with that one. And it was difficult. Well, again, God has no such problems. Turn to Psalm 119, verse 73. Now, I know it's an obvious statement to say God has no such problems. This is designed to make you think about this and how we react regarding it. In Psalm 119, 73... He says, your hands made me, informed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. If you want to know, does God really know what I'm capable of? Why would he ask me to do this? I don't think I'm capable of it. Do you remember Moses? God speaking with Moses. God got pretty angry in, in one of their very first conversations. He says, Moses, I want you to do this. He says, I can't. I am not able. You know, choose somebody else. God said, who made man's mouth? Who made the lame? Who made the blind? All of these things. In other words, hey, buddy, don't tell me what you're capable of. I designed you. There are times we sit there and we whine and we say, God, I can't start a church in Sugar Land. God, I can't lead worship. God, I can't do this. And you are talking to the guy who designed you. He knows very well what you can and can't do. And he often is tweaking his creation to get out of you what he put into you. He knows what you're capable of. The problem is... You don't. See, the guy who made a thing knows more about it than the actual thing. You know, if you make a vase and you're a master vase maker, you know where every little imperfection is. You know where every spot of beauty is. All of those things. God has the right to make us and He did. He knows what you're capable of. Turn to Proverbs. In Proverbs, if I can ever get there, verse twenty or chapter 20. In chapter 20, verse 27, we see not only did He make us, but the lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a man. It searches out His inmost being. God, in fact, this is really leaning on the Hebrews concept, the Word of God, the lamp of the Lord, searches a man. It divides joint and marrow and all those things. We may or may not read that. It's not enough that he made you. He's continually examining examining you to see your development. He's continually looking at you to see how you've grown and what ways you've changed since the moment he made you so that he is fully aware of your capabilities. One of the things that my opponent in chess the other day, the conquering King David over here, did very well was he knew very well what each piece was best used for so that when he moved them into a particular place, he knew every angle of attack, every uh, beneficial thing he could do with them. I, on the other hand, flailing through this game uh, like an ignorant fool, would move one piece at a time, then have to think, now, what does this guy do again? And then actually move my finger on the board to find out how it could move in L-shaped patterns and where we would attack. Because of our limitations, we don't often realize what we're capable of doing for God. But if you trust Him solely, knowing that He sees the future, knowing that He sees the end from the beginning, you don't worry about your capabilities. You trust the Master. In Ephesians 2, we're not going to go there. I, I read this verse every Sunday and probably will for the rest of my life. It's been a theme just like the resurrection has. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works. Well, how can He create you You be his workmanship and for a specific purpose, but him not know what you're capable of. Of course he knows. If you want to be a good chess player, you need to be able to think several moves ahead and you need to understand everybody's capabilities. Let me bring this down to a real practical level real quick. That means that if you're used like the knight to move in an L-shaped pattern, you shouldn't be jealous of the queen who can move in any direction. If you are the king who can only move in one space but every direction, you don't get upset about the castle that moves forward and sideways. See, I did listen, David. See, you don't get envious because you all have different capabilities for different purposes. Now, that's a variation of the old message about the fingers on the hands and all of those things, but the bottom line is if you trust God who designed your capabilities, you don't worry about your inadequacies. You just do what He tells you to do. And how can you do that? Because you know He sees into the future. He sees how the result will be if you begin it. Here's one more issue along that. Turn to James 1, verse 5. The last part of the capabilities section. Y'all aren't going to sleep, huh? Y'all already know all of this? Our chess is so incredibly boring (laughs) that you're having to rethink the message, huh? James 1... Verse 5, I love this. It's something we read over, but uh, it's, it's worth noting. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Get this. You could fill in anything in the blank there. It does not have to be wisdom. That statement is not solely about wisdom. You say, Lord, I can't see into the future like you can, but I don't believe I have the capability to do what you want me to do. Well, what does James tell you to do? If you lack something, ask God who gives generously without finding fault, without saying, golly, you're so stupid for not being able to do this. He simply doesn't find fault. And what does he do? He gives it to you. So in what way are you disadvantaged? Number one, you need to trust that you, since you're nearsighted, can trust God who is able to see things afar. So you trust wherever He wants to move you and whatever He wants to do. Number two, when you examine your capabilities you realize he formed me, he created me, he did this for the purpose of accomplishing something. If it looks out of your grasp, ask him to give you the capability and James says he'll do it. Now, it occurred to me that there was a third thing that was fairly important in chess. Uh, Number one, you want to see the moves in advance. Number two, you need to have a thorough grasp of whatever piece on the board is capable of. Number three, the third thing you need to know is you need to understand the motives, you know? I thought it was simple. I thought it was just to capture a king. No, there's there's a whole lot more strategy in chess than that. You need to understand the motive of why somebody might be making a move. See, you remember I told you I had David in this neat little spot where I thought he was like in triple threat? David began moving pieces way on the other end of the board. I couldn't figure out why. And I started to focus on these pieces that were moving way on the other end of the board. And before long... I had lost sight of what was going on over here and he had me in checkmate on the other side of the board. And I I really, I didn't even grasp it as, as it was going on. And he said, Eric, you had me in so much trouble on this end. I thought I needed to divert your attention. He did a good job because he totally diverted my attention. If you want to be successful in life in the kingdom, you need to first work to understand motives. Turn to Proverbs 16. Y'all are going to be so sick of chess after this, you'll never want to play. Proverbs 16, verse 2 says, A man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. The do Lord, you know how he knows your, your motives? He watches what you do. And we're going to get a little deeper than that. How does the Lord know what somebody's motives are? He is able to assess, knowing several moves ahead, knowing what each person's capable of. He watches how you react to things, chiefly his word and it reveals your motives. See, we say, oh, I did this because. And sometimes we're honest about that, other times we're not. But Proverbs says that the Lord weighs each man's motives. Turn to 1 Chronicles. I've got a couple scriptures that I think will shed some light on this. 1 Chronicles 28. Solomon again, speaking with, with God or God speaking with him. I've got to get the Chronicles. In the 20th chapter of Chronicles and starting in the... Just throw that down, brother. Verse 9. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. What does the Lord do? He searches your heart and He understands the motives behind your own thoughts. It's not enough for Him to know what you're thinking because He's examined you. He's put you in situations where He watches how you interact with His Word. He knows why you think what you're thinking. Now, would that make a a pretty good chess player? I would say so. My inability was to not understand the motives behind David's actions, why he was moving. That's caused me many problems in life, too. It's not just on the chessboard. I didn't understand that the motive behind somebody's flattering tongue was to get into a position to stab me in the back. You know what though? God can see that kind of stuff. If I'd learned to listen to His Spirit at that moment, I would have saved myself from the painful process of having to remove a, ha- a hatchet from between my shoulder blades. See, God does understand the motives of the heart. He searches for that. Hebrews 4:12 is a scripture all of you know, and it speaks about the Word judging the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. Well, how does the Word do that? We know that the Word's living. We know all of those things. But how literally does the Word do that? When confronted with the Word, what do you do? Well, that shows what's going on in your heart. See, people that fall back on this premise, the Lord knows my heart. Even though their actions show bad things, they say, well, the Lord knows my heart. Yes, He does. He knows it by the way you react to His command. That's how the Lord knows your heart. And the problem is He knows it better than you do because you know what you're thinking, but you don't even know why you think that sometimes. He does. The Word says it. He does. And nine times out of ten when somebody says, well, the Lord knows my heart, what they're trying to get you to do is excuse all of their actions and say that something is in their heart that is not reflected in their actions. But the problem with that is Matthew 7 says the way you know what's in somebody's heart is by their actions. The whole book of James teaches this, as does most of the Bible. It's only American Baptist theology that has removed that. Now, why bring all this up? I bring this up because if you know God can see into the future to know the end from the beginning, if you know that He has a firm grasp on your abilities, and if, he, if you know that He perfectly understands motives, now here's the kicker, not just yours, but the enemy's, then you can trust His movement in your life. Let's look at this. What does Satan mean? Opposition. Satan means opposition. So if there was a chess match going on, Satan would be the guy on the other side of the board, right? The Bible says that God searches and understands even the thoughts or the motives behind thoughts. This is really important because if David knows that I'm moving I'm using David. I pick on you all morning, but it's because you beat me yesterday. I earned this right. And not once, not twice, but three times. And he probably beat me a fourth, but my wife came home and insisted we stop playing. And um, what would happen when we were playing chess was I had a particular motive in mind. And not being a very complex guy, it was usually to kill one piece at a time. Well, understanding that, he was able to divert my attention to accomplish something entirely different. God is not unlike that at all. He has weighed the devil's heart. He has looked at his motives and it's declared in the Word. You have said in your heart, I will rise to be on the mountain of the Lord. You know, all of these scriptures, even when he's speaking to the king of Tyre, it looks as if he's speaking to the power behind the king of Tyre. Even when he's speaking to the serpent, he's speaking really to the power that influenced the serpent. You know, God shows that he has an understanding of Satan's heart. In fact, there's this whole discourse in the book of Luke where Jesus is being tempted in the desert and the devil says, hey, man, I give you all the kingdoms you want. They've been given to me. I can give them to anybody I want. Is his motive not exposed right there? He wants people to worship him. He wants people to revere him as having control of the whole earth. Well, because that's the case, God, knowing that motive, was able to perfectly set the trap for him. Turn to first Corinthians two and first it's probably second Corinthians, actually, but uh, it might be first. guess I ought to take better notes, huh First Corinthians. Uh, 2, 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. We are, I'm sorry, who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, on that note, the idea being God perfectly understands motives. He understands your motives when you do things. It's us who often are short-sighted. The enemy, Satan, his motives are clear to God. God has put him in positions, watched how he reacted to the Word of God, and so his motives were revealed. This brings up the last concept that we're going to talk about in chess today. The first one, I know mean, I'm being repetitious here, but I just want you to get them. was you need to be able to see several moves of head, which God can do. He sees the end from the beginning. The second was you need to understand the abilities of each piece, which God does. He formed us. The third was you need to understand the motives behind things, which God does because he examines everything against his word. The fourth is strategic sacrifice. It became apparent to me that to become successful in the game of chess, you needed to learn how to sacrifice a pawn to protect the king. You needed to learn how to sacrifice one piece for the benefit of the other pieces on the board. And I think you can see where I'm going with this. God, knowing Satan's motive, put him in a position where he lashed out against a human being. And he lashed out against this human being because he was a threat to him. If he had known what the result was, if he had known what he was doing, he never would have done it. Because in our game, in this game that we're talking about, this spiritual game, turn to Philippians and you see what happened. In Philippians 2, verse 5, it says, "...your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. What's the lowest chess piece on the board? The pawn. So although Jesus was the king, he took the form of a pawn. And the reason he took the form of the pawn was to lure the enemy into a trap. This was a strategic sacrifice. He knew that if the devil attacked him here it would open up the chance for him to crush the head, which was the motive stated where? All the way back in Genesis. See, while God's motives, or while Satan's motives are understood by God, God's motives were not understood by Satan. God has been more than willing, when he made the promise to Israel about the diaspora, he was more than willing to wait a couple thousand years to bring it about, just to make it a bigger victory. God is more than willing to allow a long period of time go by where it looks like he is terribly, pitifully losing so that he can lure the enemy into a trap because he understands the enemy's motives and he sees the next move. He gives away some pieces so that he can crush the enemy in one final blow. Now, who is that good for? It's good for all Christians, but who is it hard for? in the body of Christ, those of us that are pawns. So what did God do? He set the supreme example by setting aside His kingship and becoming a pawn to show us how to do it. You lay down your life for the purpose of being attacked by the enemy, being an example, put at the end of the parade, Paul said, that you might lead others to glory. See, what seems like a a paradox, why on earth would David allow me to take this pawn in this situation? Why on earth would he put it at risk? Because he knows that if that one falls over, it leaves me in a position that's vulnerable. I can't hardly say the word, but you know what I'm talking about. Leaves me in a place where I'm almost defenseless. That's exactly what God did. He took the form of a servant, a regular human being, so that when he was attacked by the enemy, it gave him a chance to say, you killed an innocent man and show that one man's victory over death. So that while Satan took advantage of Adam... The second Adam, Jesus, took advantage of Satan. He disarmed him publicly in front of everybody. He beat him like a red-headed stepchild is what I like to say. I never had a red-headed son or a stepchild so I can get away with saying that. With that kind of thought in mind, I got the title for this and we're going to close because we're creeping up on an hour from a movie that was a book. Anybody in here ever read the book or seen the movie Count of Monte Cristo? Okay. Okay. Good, you're familiar with it. I hope that people that listen to this on CD are familiar with it. In this movie, there are two characters that are like brothers. And I can't remember their names, but it's not important. At different points in life, one was up while the other was down. And whoever seemed to be in the advantageous position took a king piece into his hand. There's even a conversation that occurs with Napoleon Bonaparte and one of these men about that king and the exchange. And Napoleon makes the statement, in life there are only kings and pawns. And the worldly wisdom behind what Napoleon is saying is, he's the king and everybody else is pawns. That that was what he was trying to convey because he was full of himself. But see, the point of this whole movie is, the guy who seemed to be in the pawn position, he was betrayed by his brother, or his friend that was like a brother. His wife ran off with the same guy who bore a child that looked like it was his. He, however, went to the Chateau d'If and spent years and years being beaten on a regular basis and in prison. He went in with the attitude, God grant me justice. But while he was there, he decided there was no God. This is not all that unlike Christians who come into the Christianity walk and we say, oh, wow, God is awesome. I feel so blessed. It's so awesome. Until you end up in a place like Chateau d'If. Not being able to see the next move. Not knowing what God is trying to accomplish. Not understanding your capabilities to endure. Not understanding the motive of what God might have done to put you there. Not understanding the principle of strategic sacrifice. You find yourself there and you begin to despair of life. And you begin to say, God, what God? I've been enduring this without his notice. Do you realize he left Egypt or Israel in Egypt 400 years? 400 years. Why? Why does the Bible say he did it? So it could bring them out with great wonder. <laughs> he did that to them for 400 years. We read it as a story and then we criticize Israel later for all kinds of things. If he leaves you in a place for four minutes, do you whine? How about four months? What if it's four years? 40 years? You know, all of these are very biblical numbers. 40 years. You know, what if it's a few thousand years? like the return from the diaspora, It requires trust that he sees things that you don't see, that he understands your capability to endure in a way that you don't. It requires that he understand, that you believe he understands your motives and the motives of the opponent. And most of all, it requires that you understand strategic sacrifices have to be made. Because the moral to this story in this prison is he didn't stay there. God provided for him a cellmate who taught him about life and education he would not have received if he was not in prison. Then secondly, he escaped. And when he escaped, because of what the man taught him, he had wealth he never would have had access to. He had an education he never would have had access to. So in the end of the story, the man who was the pawn who was put in prison for uh, a length of time ends up with justice over his adversary, the return of his rightful bride and had a child that he had always wanted that was his. And the end of the story shows that the pawn really turned out to be the king. At least that's my take on the book of the Count of Monte Cristo. How is that not unlike the gospel? The gospel is the king of the universe that became a pawn, was mistreated and abused, but it was a strategic sacrifice. He did it for the purpose of rising to the very top, higher than he was as a man, to be a man in the Godhead with God from the beginning of all time so that He would have wealth that wouldn't be available to men, spiritual wealth I'm talking about, so that He would have a wife that is rightfully His, the bride of Christ, so that that would produce offspring, righteousness for the whole planet. See, God understands these things very well. He moves further in advance than you can see that He's moving, but His Word will be a lamp to your feet if you learn to trust it. His spirit will lead you in the right situations. And if you don't question the motives of God's heart, if you don't do that but you trust Him, you'll see success everywhere that you go. I may never be a better chess player, but by understanding chess, I can be a better Christian. The Word will teach you all things. You can look at gardening and see a profound message, you can be in the grocery aisle of the store looking at lean cuisines and God can teach you about himself from the lean cuisines because he's a big God. We need to open our eyes and begin to understand what's going on around us. If we do that, we'll see success in everything that we do. It also helps you endure the chateau d'Ifs of of life. This is a strategic side. Why am I in Lafayette? What is happening here? Why do I feel like... My every effort is frustrated. Why am I separated from my friends and family? Why, why, why? And I'm whining and crying and upset. And they felt oppressed. It looked as if God had left me. Now, I had no idea at that time that four generations of Yvette Blanchard's family would get saved because of it. I had no idea at that time that it would prepare me to be in the right spot at the right time with the right education, the right everything, to move to Sugarland, which God had for me and prepared in advance. I had no idea. But if you bail out on God's plan, you don't ever see it come about. He's kind. Sometimes that's why he appoints something not unlike a prison. You don't have the opportunity to bail out on him because you love him. And so he sets up the situation where you're so hemmed in, you can't do anything but suffer and try to have a good attitude through it. But the end result is the pawn becomes a king. See, if a king is willing to be a pawn, then God is willing to take that pawn and make him a real king. That's what the Bible teaches. That's how he takes the high and lofty and he humbles them. But he takes the humble and raises them to the high and lofty places. Now, I probably confused y'all with the things that I said today. No telling, jumping around from diaspora to captivity, from Cyrus to Titus to all of those things. But the whole point is He sees more than we see. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. He knows our motives, His motives, and the motives of the enemy. We need to learn to trust Him. And even if it looks like you're making a huge sacrifice, He wouldn't ask you to do it if it wasn't for the greater good. So stand up and let's pray.